Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. And so we've got a continuous feed of data on the quality of life of our clients. Now, we know that there's lots of things going on in the lives of people with disability and changes in their quality of life um, are not, of course, entirely attributable to higher up. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things that I think is, um, is unique about the way that we measure our impact is we say, well, what's going on for people who've just joined higher up so in their first six months let's let's kind of take a read on quality of life at that point fantastic to be back with you here as always we're proud to be sponsored by the great folk at neon treehouse who are still the best digital agency on the planet earth and have the right solution for any and all of your digital needs check out the offer in our show notes to learn more Creole are now the official drink of Humans of Purpose, and their delicious, healthy sodas are ideal for those looking for a bubbly and refreshing alternative to sugary sodas, or just a break from the booze in general. You can find a great deal on Creole purchases, just check out their link in our show notes and further details there. As you may be aware, our new membership model is in full swing, and current members like Andrew 1, Andrew 2, Nikki, Margaret, Ben, Misha and Chris are now enjoying great benefits via our Supercast platform, including... Early access to all episodes, all episodes are ad-free, full transcripts of every episode, my five key takeaways from each episode, personal audio notes on every episode, and brokered introductions to podcast guests, current and performer. To get your membership and support our sustainability, just hit the link in our show notes under membership or head directly to humansofpurpose.supercast.com. If you're a values-aligned organization seeking to connect with our wonderful audience, we're offering just a few more promotional packages for the year for guests to appear on the show, along with a number of other promotional perks. To learn more, just hit the link in our show notes or head to humansofpurpose.com. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Joe Dreyfus to the podcast. Joe is the social impact controller at Higher Up. HireUp is Australia's largest NDIS-registered online platform enabling people with a disability to find, hire, and manage their team of disability support workers. HireUp have employed, trained, and verified over 10,000 support workers to ensure their users receive the best support possible. They have a unique service model and a few points of difference that make what they do highly impactful. They're also big into social impact measurement, and we will learn much about this in this episode. This is a great opportunity to learn about how a tech platform is able to harness social impact measurement and use it to good effect, to learn about how it is working to enable social impact, but also to enable process, platform, and experience improvement. Their approach to social impact measurement at HireUp earned them the 2021 Simna Award for Excellence in Social Impact Measurement. Joe has an incredible background in management consulting and government and has a personal connection to Higher Up too, which you'll learn more about in this episode, making it very meaningful, I think, for Joe and for myself to hear about. I was honoured that Joe felt comfortable enough to share that with me during the episode. Hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome on this cold Friday morning, Joe, to the podcast. Welcome. 
Thanks very much for having me on the podcast, Mike. Pleasure to be here. I am thrilled to have you on. I've heard so much about Higher Up and obviously the great work you've done um, through my own channels, um, through Simna, through various uh, avenues and people. So thrilled you could make it. Maybe in true Humans of Purpose style, it'd be great to hear a bit about your journey um, into where you are today at Higher Up and how you made your way into that space. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess my journey to Higher Up kind of, I don't know, where, where should we start? I can start at uni. So I, I like to say the fetus or university. That's just <laughs> sort of two distinct jumping off points. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll go for university. <laughs> Good choice. Um, so I did an arts commerce degree at Melbourne University. Uh, I majored in economics because for me, learning about economics um, was about understanding how the world works, um, incentives, human behaviour, um, for me, it's social science. It happens to be in the commerce faculty at, in, at Melbourne University, but nowhere else, um, anywhere else in the world is economics taught um, together with commerce. Um, and I went into the public service after that. I was a graduate economist with the, um, what was it? It had a shocking acronym at the time. It was um, DERD. So it was the Victorian Department of Innovation Industry Research and Development, DERD. Could you find a drier acronym? That's a challenge that goes yeah. out to all our listeners. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I ended up in a, um, a bit, of, bit of a funny spot for someone who um, wanted to change the world and was a bit naive about what uh, uh, the role of government was um, in society in that I found myself managing the contract with the L'Oreal Melbourne Fashion Festival. Wow. Um, so straight out of uni, really I wanted to work in um, uh, social services, but, you know, that was where I got a job. Um, and so I'm going off to runway shows and I'm the most popular person in the <laughs> office because I'm coming back <laughs> with these show bags. Anyway, um, needless to say, um, it wasn't my passion yep. um, and I was looking for a way to move into something more aligned with my natural interests in government. Um, couldn't see a way to do it from that vantage point so uh, I went away and did more study. So I did a um, Masters of Applied Econometrics. Um, did you stay in your government role? While you I did, did I did, yeah. Um, so um, oh, I guess it's a long time ago now but um, thank you to my uh, generous manager at the time who guaranteed me a job while I went away for a year to do more study. Um, I, that's relevant because I didn't come back to the job. But <laughs> <laughs> but great manager. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went away and did more study and while I was away I thought I can't go back and do more industry policy um, and I had a friend at a management consulting firm called Nouse Group and she said, um, uh, why don't you think about doing management consulting because there's good values alignment, um, you can um, you can exercise your conscience about which clients you worked with, which appeal to me. Um, <laughs> that was the sell. But then when it, you got in there, they said these are your clients. <laughs> well, no, no, that, that, no? that wasn't Actually? my experience and that was why I stayed there for eight years. Wow, um, that's fantastic. It was fantastic. And so there were, there were clients where I said, um, you know, Thanks, but no thanks. And that was fine because I was, you know, there was enough work going around. Um, and so I did lots of different things in um, those first couple of years, a kind of broad strategic policy, um, organisational change type um, growth experience for me. But then towards the last three or four years, I was mainly human services. So I did lots of child protection work. I did lots of family violence, lots of um, a bit of housing and a bit of disability. Mm. And then um, it was around 
Um, and then I guess the next, the next really big moment in my journey towards higher up was the birth of my second son, Arlo, um, who has a developmental delay. He's got a chromosomal disorder, um, which means that he will have a lifelong disability. And so after he was born, I became very, very interested in, in disability. And it, um, I guess it brought a different kind of meaning to my work um, in the space. And so I was connected uh, through my brother to uh, people at higher up while I was still at NAUS and thought, oh, I wonder if they could use some management consulting. Maybe I can sell them something. Um, but I had a fantastic connection with a couple of people at higher up. So Murray, who's one of the co-founders and a woman who I worked with up until December last year, Harriet, um, who was the head of um, impact and innovation at the time. And we had some really interest, interesting discussions about social impact measurement um, and what the role of measurement is in a for-profit, um, for-profit, for-purpose, uh, social services delivery organisation. Yep. And that was, that was 12 months ago and um, here we are. Well, that's a really um, interesting sort of couple of things to think about you put at the end, you know, the, the role of social impact measurement in a for-purpose, for-profit organisation. It's something that the sector has probably grappled with for a really long time and still continues to grapple with. Um, the other thing I want to ask you about is having a son with a developmental disability. I mean, I often think, you know, from just from my own perspective, is it risky or is it desirable to work in a field that you have so much kind of passion for because of your own experience? Yeah, I think it's something I wondered about before I decided to take on the role. And I don't think I knew before taking it on if it was going to be right. Um, I speculated beforehand around, will, will it just feel too heavy coming into work and thinking about this stuff day to day and then um, and then experiencing it at home um, as well? And, and what I found is that for me, um, I've met some, I've been fully integrated into the disability community um, through Higher Up and, and that's been a fantastic opportunity and I've been exposed to um, a way of thinking about the world and um, other people's experience of this world that I never would have been exposed to if it weren't for Arlo and if it weren't for Higher Up and that's, that's, been, that's been transformative actually um, and I've found through the people that I've met that it's helped me... Um, Feel, feel really connected to Arlo and have hope that his future will be one where he's connected to um, a community and has strong relationships and has friends and he has employment and that's because I've seen that that is, that is all possible. Um, and it's so it's been, it's been excellent actually. It's tremendous. I mean I don't think I've heard someone come on this show who's got such strong purpose alignment between purpose, uh, personal purpose and organisational purpose and just the way that that sort of carries you and lightens the load of um, what we call work. You know, they call it work because it's hard and you'd rather not do it. Well, it sort of seems a bit different in, in this case and for many of us who work in the, the for-purpose space, I guess um, – we do get that extra bit of energy from knowing that what we're working towards is making a difference to something that matters to us and community. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, let's talk a bit about higher up and the mission and the organisation and all of that kind of jazz. Sure. So um, higher up is an organisation that connects people with disability with support workers um, on the basis of shared connection. So um, it's 
it's a tech platform that enables that connection to happen between our clients, people with disability and those support workers. And I guess what the unique thing about HireUp is compared with, say, traditional service providers is that if I'm, let's say I'm Joe, I'm a client on HireUp and I've got muscular dystrophy and I say um, I'd like to um, go shopping on Tuesday and Thursday and I need a bit of help and I also go for Collingwood and I'm uh, into surfing. Um, and you're Mike and you're, you've um, met our minimum threshold, which is uh, I've got a first aid certificate, uh, I've got a police check and I'd like to do some disability support work and I'm available on Tuesday and Thursday and I go for Collingwood. Does it matter if I don't go for Collingwood? Well, I probably wouldn't use you Fair in, in this example. Fair yep. enough. Um, <laughs> um, but then, but then higher up makes makes us match. So mm-hmm. I post my needs on a you know a job board, and then you can see oh, I'm free, and then bang, we're we're connected. Now, um, the difference between that and the traditional service provider model is I go, hi, I'm Joe. I've got muscular dystrophy. Um, provider A, can you please support me? And they say. Yes, but um, your worker is available on Monday and Wednesday and they go for Carlton um, and, and I can take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, if, and if we go shopping together and it doesn't work out, well, then that's it. I can go down the road or I can look, look elsewhere on the platform and find a different worker. So for me, what I love about HireUp is, it, is that it's bringing to life the aspiration of the NDIS, which is to give people with disability choice and control over their support needs. So it's almost like a real embodiment of the um, consumer-directed care prerogative of the NDIS. Exactly it's really putting right. the power back in hand in the hands of the person with the disability um, to the extent that they may not want to hang out with somebody with a rival football club. So fair enough. <laughs> yeah, spot on. We all have choices to make in life and that's a beautiful one to be able to make. That's right. Um, what I think is interesting, is, you know, with, with your management consulting background, I didn't even have to ask you the question about what is the unique value proposition of <laughs> Of hierarchy, you just got straight to yeah. it, which is magical for me. Um, but also enables me to sort of ask you to elevate a little bit and just talk about the sort of grander vision or the, the aspirations of higher up. Yeah, so I mean, higher up is on a growth path. Mm. Um, so last year, um, Seek Investments tipped in forty million dollars mm-hmm. to um, really supercharge our, our growth aspirations. It was founded in Sydney, and it is it is more prominent in. The Sydney market. I would say that the disability community in Sydney, really higher up, plays a, a really central part in the in the service ecosystem up there. Less so in Melbourne, and so um, big plans in Melbourne to to expand here. And you're here right now in Melbourne making this podcast. That's and right. So this I is am shooting out through the airways from Cremorne, uh, <laughs> signalling your intent. That this is true, and our um, our office is just around the corner. Oh, wonderful! Yeah. So, um, yeah, big plans to grow across the country. Um, we also, and, and so we talk about um, having 25,000 clients um, in 2025. So um, that's a big lofty goal, but um, we're at around 10,000 now. So it's, it's kind of within reach. Um, we also talk about making higher up work for um, people who perhaps don't have People have who have more access issues around organising this their support. So, cold community, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability, um, making sure that our platform isn't inaccessible. Mm. That 
um, any type of person with disability can actually actually exercise uh, the choice and control that um, the NDIS enables. It's interesting. You just talked about um, you know quite sizable sums of capital being invested into the organisation, and I, I suppose that's what makes Hire Up a little bit different as well. Like sort of being a a, a social purpose organisation, but also high growth, high impact, and at scale as well. Um, do you see that sort of very aligned incentives and as a bit unique, or do you kind of is there anyone you look at who's similar, or are you a bit kind of um, a rule onto yourselves because your example is quite different? Um, I, I think we are quite unique, certainly um, compared with the large not-for-profits who also do um, lots of disability service delivery. Um, I think that um, I think there's two ways of thinking about it. So, on the one hand, you could say um, you could say that just because the person with disability is making the choice to use higher up that we must be doing a good thing and that um, the fact that they are exercising their own agency in deciding to buy our services means that we're probably doing a good thing. Yep. Um, now, there's lots, lots, every disability services provider would say, oh, we're trying to do the right thing by people with disability, but you still get disability um, Royal Commissions and you still have a Quality and Safeguards Commission that exists to um, protect people with disability from um, from risky services and, and, and unsafe situations. So um, your question was about incentives. So let me try and let me try and um, bring it back to incentives. But I think um, one of the things that we do in higher up to make sure to to keep ourselves accountable and make sure that um, that profit incentive doesn't take us in the wrong direction is we measure our social impact. Um, and so what we do is we have a measure, um, we have a basically to get down into the weeds because I, I expect some of your uh, listeners might be interested in, in the actual mechanics of this. Yeah, go ahead. But um, we have a short survey, so it's only three questions which asks our clients about their satisfaction with life as a whole and it asks them once every six months and it's embedded within our platform. So you log in and you um, answer this survey once every six months and so we've got a continuous feed of data on the quality of life of our clients. Now we know that there's lots of things going on in the lives of people with disability and changes in their quality of life um, are not of course, entirely attributable to higher up. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I think is um, is unique about the way that we measure our impact is we say, well, what's going on for people who've just joined higher up? So in their first six months, let's let's kind of take a read on quality of life at that point, and then let's take another read of the people who've been using higher up for more than two years, and let's see if there's a difference in the average quality of life for those two cohorts because if we have a big enough sample size then we can attribute that um, in a statistical sense to them having used higher up. What's, what's the sample size required to, to sort of and that this is like a how long is a piece of string question I'm only asking because I did a very similar thing in a past job. Yeah yeah <laughs> um, so we so we have between you know two and three hundred people answering this yep. survey every month um, Every, every month, that's yeah, solid. Yeah, so it would be great to have more. Um, 
but but it's enough, you know. I, I wouldn't um, write my PhD on it, but um, can I hand on my heart say yeah. higher up is improving the quality of life of our clients? Absolutely. Well, you're not a well-funded university, and I, I think um, that's sometimes the the misconception in this space of called social impact measurement is that we don't have endless resources to do rigorous academic. Um, randomised control trials on <laughs> what's going on in their organisation. Totally. I mean, in the future, some might, um, but I, I think, you know, um, we just, we find that balance between science and art and we, we kind of make an interpretation of the best readings we have at the time and at a different point in time of the difference in the things that matter most to people. Um, yes. I think you've explained that really well. Yeah. What I want to ask you about is when you do that calculation, do you pair? Like is it matched and averaged? Or? Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. It's one of the first questions I asked when I yeah. when I joined Higher Up. Yeah. Um, and because we really only had this, uh, I guess, measurement regime in place since September last year, we don't have that um, interval between readings yeah. to do panel data analysis, yep. it, it's kind of cross-sectional, yep. you know. Cross-sectional, what, yeah, so, that's fine. So down the track, um, absolutely we, yep. we will, but we need to get to two years of data collection in this form before we can run that type of analysis. Yeah. I, I can't wait. And perhaps a really good discussion just for people who think that it's easy. I mean, people often talk about measuring impact in the um, in for-purpose organisations, but if you haven't done it before, you've got probably a couple of years of pure data management, um, setting up systems, data collection, IT. There's a lot to happen before you actually get any of the data. And then you have to get the right data and then you have to baseline it and then you have to wait a fair period to see change. That's. I think that's true. Um, my only reservation around that statement is that I wouldn't want to scare anyone off from dipping their toe in because I think before people give it a go, um, it can seem like it's this scary, big technical oh, thing that yep. you can muck up. And it's so important for organisations, particular, particularly with particularly um, organisations with fewer resources than higher up. Um, and, you know, we have a dedicated impact team now. Um, but there's lots of small scale type things that, that you can do, which can lead to more sophisticated um, measurement techniques down the track. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of interesting to see the, the rise in the prevalence of um, on executive teams ahead of social impact or ahead of impact. Um, I find that really interesting to look at over time as organisations start to think about how important data and measurement is. Yeah. And, yeah, of course, what I said before, I mean, I just think it's more about, um, you know, understanding that it's a journey. Yeah. And all journeys you know, of a thousand miles start with that first step, but also, you know, you've got to, I think, be a bit realistic about the quality of the measurement you want to do, the robustness, the resourcing, and also another consideration is like, do you insource or outsource? Totally, um, totally. And you've got a team at Higher Up that does this, which is probably quite rare for an organisation your size. You've really sort of decided to to make it a key focus of what you do. Yeah, well, we've made it a key focus of what we do because it is the right thing to do because if you're not tuned into the quality of life of your clients, then what are you there to achieve? Um, and our purpose is to enable the pursuit of a good life for everyone and that permeates through the organisation in different ways. Um, but one of the key jobs of, of our team is to make sure that um, we can bring some of the impact data that we collect in our team and make it relevant to the teams that are um, software engineers building a tech platform that are people 
who are on the other end of the phone when something goes wrong on a shift. Um, that yeah, that it makes it relevant to the executive and that it drives improvements into the organ like throughout the organization. So this is really important point you raised, the one around um impact measurement being really um important to many stakeholders, but internally to drive motivation, but also alignments, um and also quality. That's absolutely right. And and you know, to be to be quite candid, I mean one of the things that has been a really interesting challenge for impact at higher up has been to um to I guess think about how we can use our impact data as a leading indicator of everything else that we're trying to achieve. Um, it's a good lagging indicator, you know, when when um, people with disability are really satisfied with their support workers. If shifts aren't getting cancelled, if um, if things are going right, then we can then we see an uptick in quality of life um, in the months afterwards. Um, what we would like to get better at is using quality of life data and understanding what we're, um, you know, the, the, the inputs to predict and say, well, this is coming down the track. What are we going to do today to stop that blip that we can anticipate? So I guess this is the interesting point at which impact measurement almost becomes real-time business intelligence um, or, or like a, an active quality improvement measure. That's right. And I find that nexus just fascinating because I think, you know, too often we think of impact measurement as sort of this static read of how things are going for people, but we don't see that it can be used to really improve things for those people. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I mean, to to take, to, and this is a slight tangent, but part of the reason why I'm able to do this job is because when I was a management consultant, I did lots of evaluation work. And so evaluation is critical and I would never want to... Um, be seen to be undermining the the value of evaluation, but it is a point in time assessment looking backwards about whether or not something has worked or it hasn't worked. And that's incredibly valuable and necessary when you're talking about vast sums of money that government is investing in social services interventions. But rarely, in my experience, did I see government setting up continuous monitoring no. systems um, like the one that we've got at higher, which would enable that, um, you know, shorter feedback loops and um, and opportunities to really improve what's happening on the front line uh, in real time. I think we've ended up in a bizarre um, situation, probably that no one anticipated, where the cart has really dragged the horse along in mm. terms of sectoral organisations leading the way with impact measurement techniques that you then have to explain to funders and government why they're best in show, whereas, you know, you would have thought from a systems perspective um, if the government sort of said, look, you know, we're the ones with all the resources, so we'll we'll let you know what the best way to feed in metrics is. Yeah. Um, and look, I don't know what it's like in NDIS. Maybe that happens to an extent. But um, certainly from my background in government and health in particular, um, could sort of just sort of see that they were only starting to talk really about it, outcomes measurement and impact measurement in 2015, 2016, and I don't know how much headway they've made, but enough to know that it hasn't transformed the sector. It's really yep. the other way around. Um, a lot of reference groups, a lot of input into government about what is best practice and trying to maybe adapt that internally. Yep. So, yep. yeah, I, mean, I wonder what your reflections are on that. I mean, I, I, mean I, I did, did lots of work with government over the years and I certainly saw – 
green shoots. Um, and I don't, I don't think it would, would be fair to say that government isn't thinking hard about this because there's lots of clever, motivated, um, energetic people in government who really, really understand how important outcomes are. I think the systems work against those people. Yeah. I think, um, um, you know, funding, the way funding happens in government, the way that risk aversion is baked into ways of working um, means that um, it's really hard to change systems that are really built on, you know, counting widgets and outputs um, and it's going to take a long time to actually unwind that. It's very well said. If I could subtitle it a little bit, bureaucracy sometimes stifles change and innovation. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, yeah. procurement as well is another thing that's slow to change, um, but also shifting from an evaluate, a program evaluation mindset to an organisational impact mindset yes. is a big one. And I, I sort of don't think we're there yet. I wanted to ask you about um, kind of often think about the metaphor of working on the machine versus working in the machine. So th- th- that difference between maybe being at a higher up versus being in government working on NDIS or being at NAUS um, and consulting to government organisations on how to do their job. W- where did you find that kind of um, split between, you know, and and for you just thinking about where you'd be most effective, did you think much about that kind yeah. of Yeah. Look, I at various times I've thought I would be better off doing like one or the other, um, I think, and I did spend time on secondment into government while I was a management consult- consultant because I wanted to do more of that, um, you know, working in the machine. Um, I think I think in respect of management consultants um, that uh, sometimes the work can feel quite peripheral. So, sure, you know, you're you know, you're catching up with the secretary or the deputy secretary and, and you're providing advice that is well re- well researched and thoughtful and um, um, and complete and, and watertight. Um, but ultimately the big decisions in government are made by people um, who rely on evidence and information, but it's also about personal relationships and it's also about um, what's happening at the political level at the time. And so as a consultant, sometimes you can feel um, peripheral. Then then I found it higher up that I feel much more connected um, to the coalface. So while I'm not making um, the big, I'm not having the big discussions about systems and how they should work, or at least I'm having them, but I know I'm not, I don't have a seat at the table. It's a bit more speculative. Um, at least I'm improving an actual service for a person with disability by the, by doing my day job better. And so I've, I found that incredibly satisfying um, and energizing for me at this time. I, I look, I, I, I can't say that I wouldn't take this experience and go back into government or go back into an advisory type of role and really double down on what I've learnt through this experience and be a better bureaucrat or be a better advisor. Um, but at this time, I'm, I'm in the right spot. Yeah, you're at the coalface yeah. making things happen. It's yeah. great. Um, so with what you do at Higher Up, I mean – were there a lot of other players in the space in the early days and was it sort of a battle of the forms kind of situation or a battle of the platforms type of thing early on? Um, so Higher Up was founded around um, seven or eight years ago by um, brothers and sisters Laura and Jordan O'Reilly and at the time um, Higher Up was one of the first. Um, 
because it was at the time that NDIS was just kicking up. There was a lot of um, there was a lot of uncertainty for people with disability about what it would mean to say, you know, I guess break up with your traditional tr- provider and go out into the big wide world and organise your own supports to um, to exercise your, your own choice and control. Um, and Laura and jo- Jordan um, had a brother um, who has since passed away, but at the time um, they were frustrated that, and I'm, I'm sure they won't mind me telling their story sure. because this is part of the story of Higher Up, mm. um, and they really struggled to find appropriate supports for him. And that was that was what motivated them in a very organic way. You know, they're not, um, you know, they didn't, um, they're, I think they're natural entrepreneurs, but it's not like they went out to do a startup. Um, but they wanted to find support workers that matched the um, the interests and the personality of their brother, um, and that was where um, that was around the t- around the same time as NDIS was just ramping up, and so people were um, in the transition phase, and so the timing was perfect because. At the same time as people suddenly have these individualised budgets which enable them to go out and buy the supports that they need, um, the market didn't really exist. And so um, that was why Higher Up did so well in the early days. There are now, um, you know, there are, there'd be 10 competitors, right, who, who run a platform model um, who, you know, a person with disability can choose to go and try and find supports there. Um, the one thing that I would say about Hirat, which I think distinguishes us from many of our competitors, is that we actually employ our support workers. So um, there's an alternative where, um, you know, and it's a contractor model, which is a bit like, um, you know, it's the Uber model um, where uh, a support worker can get their own ABN and they can pay for their own insurance and, yep. they, and they can take on the risk themselves. Yeah. Um, or you can um, you can go to hire up and try and find your supports there where our support workers are employed casually. We're an NDIS registered provider. We pay payroll tax. We pay superannuation. We pay insurance. Mm. Um, and it's a giant improvement um, for a lot of people and quality of their lives as well, just being employees rather exactly than Exactly right. Yeah, there's yeah. kind of... You know, it is it is gig work, but there is there are you know there are two ways to do gig work. Yeah, you can either pass on most of the costs to the gig worker, or you can support them to help them you know be flexible and impactful. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So so I I mean I I think it's the better model. Um, time will tell. Um, I don't think there's going to be one or two winners. I think there's going to be a rich market for disability services, which are platform based for some time. Yep. Um, but I, but I believe in higher up and I think higher up is going to do well. I have no doubt. Let's tackle the big hairy elephant sitting somewhere behind me in the podcast studio. What of the NDIS? I mean, it's been many years. I, I think a lot of people um, who don't know a lot about it don't rate it. Um, I think it's one of the standout achievements in politics in the last, you know, 20 years of, um, of national parliamentary history. One of the biggest social service reforms we've ever seen uh, was never going to be easy. Um, how do you think it's playing out from your perspective as a person in the sector? And then just also just commenting on how better off do you think consumers are in the industry as people with disability yeah. now, now as opposed to before the NDIS being implemented? 
Oh, it's such, it's a huge elephant um, and it's a big, it's a big question to tackle and it's, um, it's, I'm quite self-conscious about taking a position on it that, that, um, that isn't sufficiently nuanced because we've only got, you know, we're on a, we're on a podcast and we're time limited, but let me make some kind of general statements, which may or may not be true for some people and untrue for others. I think beginner's mind is a good way to yeah. frame it. Yeah. So um, it's been a major success in um, providing more individual choice and control for people with disability to exercise, um, to, go, to go about living an ordinary life. Um, because as I said earlier, um, before the NDIS, um, there were huge queuing issues. State and territory governments administered disability services and you kind of either got a place or you didn't get a place. And when you did get a place, you didn't have much choice over your um, your support. So for me, that's a big tick. Just bringing that idea to life is, is kind of revolutionary. Um, the first pilot was in 2013, so we're kind of all... But, and then it kind of fully launched in 2016. So we're either kind of nine years in or we're six years in. And the transition has been um, very difficult for a lot of people. Um, getting into the scheme um, for people who have acquired a disability or, um, or people who are born with the disability has been difficult um, because the systems and processes that the NDIA has set up are, um, are not super accessible. Um, they're always trying to improve them, um, but still, you know, even um, parents who are medical professions, professionals of, of children with disability, they talk about the difficulties in navigating systems. Um, the way that the NDIA um, makes decisions about what a person with disability is um, entitled to um, spend their budgets on um, is is problematic at times. And so you'll hear very vocal um, peak bodies and advocacy groups who are critical of um, budget changes to individual plans. And the way that appears in the, in the macro environment and the way that we hear about it in the media is you hear um, and, you know, you'll hear the, the federal opposition at the moment um, banging on about how the government is planning to slash the NDIS and and to cut funds and then you'll but at the same time you hear the government talking about well we actually need a sustainable insurance scheme um, this isn't a welfare scheme we need to draw the line somewhere um, but that has manifested as very difficult outcomes for um, individual people with disability um, so we would say that people feel that they if you would ask a sample of people you know do you feel like you're better off pre-NDIS or post, post? I'd say if you asked a random sample, most people would say better off. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I think are there really shocking outcomes for, for some individuals? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, I, think the, I think it's going to be really interesting to read, what the, um, read the findings of the Disability Royal Commission um, because the, cause what we've learned along the way, um, uh, you know, it's really um, – you know, shocking and awful descriptions of experiences of people with disability um, across, you know, in different types of care settings. And um, the response to that is going to be um, important. That will be a big part of the story of the improvement of the NDIS. Um, but no, I mean, I think 
I think it is a, a, a very big idea dreamt up by Shorten and Gillard uh, way back when. Um, and and in its experiment that is, is largely working, but I think it's got another five, ten years before um, it can it really irons out. Um, well, it might be one of the few major social sector reforms that's um, withstood the uh, the brimstone and fire of the political funding cycles. Yes, yeah. Well, I guess that's an achievement in and of itself. Yep. But I hope you know. Hopefully, in twenty thirty years' time, it's just like Medicare, right? Hopefully, I just kind of. And I'm not saying Medicare is perfect, but you know it's pretty good. It's pretty good, and people people don't point to it and say, "Oh, you know, there's all these issues, right?" I think a lot of people don't know what it's like in other countries, like mm. even some of our biggest country partners, like America. You know, I mean, <laughs> try oh. try going over there with any kind of health issue. Yeah, no, I, and, and I can't imagine um, how different it would be to um, be a person with disability over there um, without insurance. Yeah, it's sort of hard to fathom, isn't it? So when you're thinking about, you know, you're so far at the cutting edge of the space with the tech and the impact measurement and everything you do, who do you look to or at for ideas about how to take your ideas to the next level, innovate, you know, further ideate, yeah. refine? Yeah, it's, um, that's a great question. Um, I think, well, we certainly look to um, – other matching model type businesses um, because ultimately um, we do we are a disability services provider but we only work when we can make a good match so you know you can you know it's Airbnb or it's um, Tinder it's, um, I'm kind of loathe that that analogy comes up now and then and the reason why the reason why I don't go to Tinder is because what we find is that for our clients, it's often about building teams of yep. supports around yep. an individual. Yeah. Um, so is there a version of Tinder where, you know, one person is romantically interested in many other people <laughs> and that match is made? <laughs> then maybe the analogy works. But yeah, polygamous Tinder or yeah, something. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's it. Maybe we stick with your analogies. That might be better. I always insert Tinder when it comes to uh, platform matching, you know, people because I met my wife on Tinder and um, – <laughs> You know, I just Great. think, you know, you've got to self-affirm. You know, you've got to make sure that you, you feel like you've made the right decision. So anyway, Fair. that makes sense. Um, so so I guess on the matching front, um, that's where that's what we look to um, to learn from. And then in terms of disability services provision, you know, where uh, we, we, we talk to the other large disability services providers, um, we talk to government, we, talk, we look to um, service providers overseas, um, we, I guess one of the interesting things about our model is that because um, th- there is a relatively low bar to entry for support workers, we think that's a good thing because it um, means that you're more likely to get a good match with your worker. But we don't have a particularly strong lever in terms of saying you need to work in this particular way or you need to do this type of training or you need to have this um, approach to your practice. And so a- as a result, um, we're, I guess, a bit more subject to the whims of the disability workforce at large in terms of service innovation. Mm. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's that environment of constrained innovation, you know, it's sort of difficult. And that's why I thought, you know, be interesting to know how you kind of operate in that space. Um, it's been amazing chatting with you. Uh, we, we should probably wrap up, but I did want to ask you, um, how can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Sure. So um, 
you can look me up on LinkedIn. Um, I would love to hear from any of your listeners. Always happy to talk about um, social impact measurement, about higher up, um, about disability, about government. Um, so please get in touch. Um, you should definitely check out www.hireup.com.au. You can learn, learn a lot about our business model just by kind of clicking around um, and getting a sense of how matching works in, in disability service provision. Um, and you're also a winner of the uh, recent Simner Awards in 2021. So we'll pop a link in the show notes so people can learn a bit more about the, the wonderful work you're doing in that space. Fantastic. And yes, shout out to Simna um, because without um, having won that award, uh, I wouldn't be sitting here across from you, Mike. So. Not so sure about that, but fair, fair <laughs> enough. I, I mean, I love Higher Up, so I was um, honestly thrilled to see that you'd won that and you know, had a chance. I, I just thought to myself, why haven't I reached out? I think I might have tried, but why haven't I reached out earlier to make this happen? So great that you could join me. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Cheers, mate. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.